Alrighty, welcome to our webinar today on prevent planting opportunities for cover crops. Steve Groff is going to be our presenter and he's going to talk to us about that. I think there's a few areas of the country that are experiencing a little bit of this. Some are very dry, some are very wet. So um, we're going to take a look at the wet situation today. So with that, I'll turn it over to Steve and Steve, you can take it away and tell us what you've got. Okay, Wayne, thank you uh, very much, and thank you so much for joining us again. <clears throat> Prevent planting is something that occurs somewhere every year, and then, of course, some degrees varying uh, intensity or varying geographical area. I think uh, for particularly for those who are not experiencing it this year, you may be, uh, you know, wondering, well, you know, why bother listening? But the point I think is here is, if the situation arises, that you would be ready for the options that are out there, and I think that's key to learning about what to, how to, how to kind of maximize an unfortunate situation when we don't have the uh, the the ability due to weather to be able to plant our cash crops that we that we have intended that we've intended to plant. So, what almost every farmer first thinks about cover crops is a couple different things here and and these this really doesn't apply to a lot of you guys that are listening today but uh, when we think about mainstream agriculture they say I don't have time to plant cover crops I don't have an available planting window I don't even know if they pay or not uh, I am uh, basically suggesting that when you have a pre-plant plant situation where you cannot get your crop cash crop planted in time there is no excuse not to plant a cover crop to get something growing and get something living in that soil. And I think that's where uh, one of the reasons uh, why, why I'm using this as a topic here so that we can be able to maximize that. One of the things I'm going to talk about today is if I do use prevented planting, if I have that happen on my farm, uh, do I have a nutrient credit? that I can attribute from the cover crop to my succeeding cash crop. I'm going to show you and discuss a case study that we did a couple years ago in Iowa. Uh, this is actually a picture of one of the fields in Iowa that was, that was uh, actually planted with radishes after they couldn't get their corn planted. And another thing that uh, I have learned over the years, and this is kind of rare, but it can occur, particularly in a prevent plant situation due to wetness, and that's what I'm going to call right now the mycorrhizal consideration. We're going to talk about that as well. It's something you may not be aware of, and it can kind of sneak up on you. So uh, as, as toward the end, I'm going to, I'm going to cover this uh, topic about the mycorrhizal. But let's just start here with kind of looking at a prevent planting checklist. Some of the things that are important to consider. And those of you who know me well um, know that I'm not a big fan of crop insurance. Uh, that being said, is a reality of our agricultural policy that we have in place. And so we need to talk about it because in the prevent plant situation, crop insurance usually comes into play somehow, some shape or form. So you need to review your crop insurance policy. You need to know what the, the rules are, what they say. And the best thing is to talk to your local crop insurance agent just to verify what you can plant, what you can and cannot do in this situation. And these factors vary by program. 
uh, depends on the crop and region. So I'm not going to go into specifics of it because you need to do what's local. Uh, the, and, and I would say this, if you hear other uh, strategies or other rules from your friends or some on another state, it, it may warrant challenging your crop insurance agent a little bit if you want to do something that they say you can't do. Um, it, it may warrant that. I'm just saying I've heard that already where sometimes local crop insurance agents don't fully understand this, especially when we come in with cover crops, now with the advent of more cover crops being used. So uh, that's just something to be aware of. Uh, just overall, most areas do not allow the harvest or the grazing, at least before November the 1st, of any of this crop that you would grow. I know there's being some provisions talked about, about giving some options or flexibility to that. Uh, I don't know exactly how that's going to play out if grazing or harvesting for forage is an option that you need to look into. You're going to have to talk to your local agent to see how that works. And there are some various government programs that sometimes do kick in, especially when there's more of a major event. And I have some things listed here. Uh, and uh, I, I, I said there, there's sometimes a special event. Uh, two years ago when they had uh, the, uh, the toxic algae in Lake Erie, there, there was uh, an option there for, for people to plant. It was really wet in that area. And there's actually was some funding that came available that was more than what was originally at the beginning of the year available to plant cover crops. So just something to be aware of in any local area. So you need to be aware of sign-up periods and, uh, and the protocol for doing all this stuff. It's kind of that uh, bureaucracy that is, is kind of reality of some of these things nowadays. But it may be an opportunity as well to help your decision and what you do with prevent planting. Well, now on to some of the more practical things. Uh, probably the, one of the bigger ones is the uh, if, if you had put on pre-plant herbicides. In other words, you were expecting to plant soybeans, you were expecting to plant corn, you might have put a residual type herbicide on. Obviously, if it's a burn down type herbicide, it's probably not going to be a factor as it relates to planting cover crops later on. But for instance, if you put a a residual down to plant corn, and then you want to plant a cover crop, let's say in, in the beginning of July because you were, you were prevented from planting your cash crop, is that residual herbicide going to affect your, uh, your cover crop? Now, there is no exact recipe to predict how any given herbicide will affect your cover crop. So many variables, so many factors go into that. It could be the amount of rainfall that happened. Obviously, prevent plant is usually associated with too wet. And a lot of times, in one way, that's a, a, in, in a favor of diluting residual herbicides, but not necessarily. Some are longer lived than others. And so you, you have the organic matter. Um, and, and a lot of variables go into this. You really don't know. You can assume some things, some herbicides, and some rates that may have been used, you could pretty well predict may be a problem and others may not be. But the best way is to take a, a soil um, 
analysis, uh, a soil test. Now, this isn't like really to take a test and get it analyzed. This is where you actually collect soil out of your field that you're going to plant about the two-inch depth. And you put it in a pot, put that soil in a pot, and then plant the actual cover crop seeds that you want to plant. If it's a mixed species or a mix or, or whatever it is, put it in that pot. Make sure there's enough water so they germinate. And then in about 10 days or so, observe and see if the seeds are affected. Now, just because a cover crop seed will show maybe subtle or slight signs of being affected by herbicide, you're still going to have to make the decision if it merits or if it's worth the risk to plant that cover crop or not. Uh, you know, little herbicide influence can be okay, but you have to understand the risk. But if you plant these little seeds in a representative sample of your soil and they look fine, the risk then is very low to plant the whole field. And then I want to just back up a little bit and mention that if you happen to have a similar type cover crop as was, was the intended crop, and I gave the example there, if you sprayed for corn, a corn residual, and you want to plant sorghum sedan grass, probably not going to have any issues in doing that because the sorghum sedan is, is nearly like corn. So there probably won't be any issues in that there. So the best thing, and this may be one of the more important things that I share today, is you go out and take a representative sample of that if you think you're going to be able to plant uh, in a given field or a given area and, and grow out a cover crop. That's going to tell you much better than any book will tell you or, or any weed scientist. Uh, that's really going to be very helpful there. The other thing to consider is what is the fertility in that field? Uh, obviously, sometimes there could have been nitrogen put out and expecting to plant corn or other fertility, what was applied to the field, or was there nothing applied to the field? And this can help determine what species of cover crop you want to use in light of that. And possibly also, what is your intended cash crop for the following year can play into this as well. So if you happen to have nitrogen or you had applied manure to that field, you would then want to tend to use a cover crop or a cover crop mix that scavenges N, like the radishes, oats, sorghum, sedan, millet, and there's a whole list of other ones that you can add to that because it's in the summertime and the list is long. But we're talking about cover crops that can scavenge nitrogen. And that's what you want so you don't lose it, so you don't lose it down into the groundwater. If there was no nitrogen applied, then you want to focus on using legumes or a mix with legumes in it, like sun hemp, cowpeas, and uh, we're going to discuss some other covers later on, but there's lots of them that you can, that you can plant or mixes you can do. Um, I'm going to um, mention here, as I already have, about the mycorrhizal connection here, but um, I, I want to help us understand that choosing the right species can enhance the potential of planting cover crops in a prevent plant situation. So what about timing now? Uh, when we look at the timing, sometimes uh, you can plant as early as uh, the beginning of July, and I'm just going to break it down to uh, about the middle of August here. And I have listed 
quite a few different uh, species there, radish, radish and oats. There's uh, the mix of radish and oats. The oats will give you more ground cover in the spring if, if you want that, if your fields are more sloping, recommending adding oats. And of course, if you can cut for 4-H later in the fall, if it's if there's a crop insurance issue to work around, you have to know about that. But adding oats is, is really, really good with, uh, with the radishes. And then, of course, as I mentioned, sun hemp, cowpeas, sorghum sedan, and mixes of them. And there's a whole list. You could probably add 20 or 30 more species there and, and mixes and so forth. So when we're doing this, the, uh, it's important to understand that in most areas where you're going to have frost in the fall, that those summer annuals, like the sun hemp, and sorghum sudan grass, cowpeas, they're going to kill at the first killing frost. So whenever that is in the area, you can just be thinking about that, uh, when that will occur, and some other species will be able to grow longer. One of the things to consider here, and this is kind of a word of caution, I guess, that some farmers are used to planting cover crops in September and October, and they're used to have them over winter. But any cover crop that's typically planted in the fall that does usually overwinter in your area, it may indeed winter kill if it's planted earlier and allowed to grow more than 12 inches or so in height. And that's likely to happen if you're replanting earlier in July and August. So, for instance, hairy vetch, crimson clover, and maybe even annual ryegrass will grow enough if it's planted in that July-August window, that it may winter kill. And that's not a bad thing. You just need to understand that because they're going to be doing a lot for your soil. You just need to understand that a cover crop that you normally use that overwintered in your area may winter kill if it gets more mature and gets taller. And uh, that's just something that I've had over the years quite a few farmers uh, we're surprised to find this out, and I don't want anybody to be surprised. Again, not a bad thing. It's just it's just how they work out. So when we plant a little later, and I'm saying here around August the 15th, and again, you're going to have to adjust some of these dates to maybe your specific area, and 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 so forth. But uh, if you plant them later, the ones that will probably winter kill, what we're, we're well aware of, is like the radishes, the oats. Uh, again, if you're far in the south, it will they may overwinter. Uh, most of uh, you know how they work. They've used cover crops. Uh, and again, I have listed here in the center section that, that could winter kill, could be crimson clover, hairy vetch, and your ryegrass, that kind of in that slot there. Uh, the ones planted early, that probably won't winter kill tend to be there's more winter hardy varieties anyway, like your triticale, your annual ryegrass, and cereal rye. Now, I, I personally don't recommend you plant triticale or cereal rye early in that time frame because I want to save that for later on in the year, later on in October. Uh, I, I want to use other cover crops if I have this option to plant early. So that's just kind of a personal um, suggestion. That, that I would I would recommend you consider when you have this opportunity to plant cover crops early, try to mix it up, try to plant other species, save those winter hardy ones for when they're really needed, and um, and so forth. Uh, one of the questions comes into play in certain areas of the country. Well, okay, if I get planted early, what about fall tillage? And those of you who know me know that I'm a uh, 
pretty much I'm a I'm a hundred percent no-tiller here in my farm in southeastern Pennsylvania. And I do understand reasons for tillage in certain areas of the country. So I'm gonna address this. And and I will say that yes, fall tillage can be done. I'm gonna have to ask the question though, is it really necessary? And um, I have heard that in uh, 2013, when there was a lot of wet areas in northern Iowa, up into Minnesota, uh, some guys were able to plant some cover crops in a prevent plant situation. And it was their real first experience then to try no-till the following year because of what the cover crops did to the soil. And that whole event helped change some uh, ways of doing things where no-till helped to to spread a little bit so I, I gotta I gotta put the question in there uh, of course it depends what type of your desired tillage is and how aggressive it is depends how big the cover crop growth is a lot of variables in there um, it's just it is something that will have to be thought out and sometimes uh, people tend to if they've never really seen a full-grown radish or a full-grown sunnap or sorghum sedan which those latter two could get five or six feet tall. It just, it, it literally scares them. How are they gonna manage that? And um, there's there's definitely some considerations there. I mean, if you have to go in and disc them down first, well, it, you know, that's just what you're gonna have to do. Uh, some other interesting observations I heard, and this came out of that area up through Northern Iowa into Minnesota. Uh, a, a couple things I'll just, I'll just share anecdotally that uh, one of the, uh, farmers said that when they hit the radishes in the field, they could go a gear higher uh, with their rippers because the radishes was already doing the job. And my question was, well, then why are we even ripping at all? But um, anyway, just an interesting observation. Another thing, and this is part of the frustration factor, any of you that growing radishes know that they can get uh, pretty juicy, I'll say, and uh, guys are having traction problems. The radishes just didn't allow them to get good traction in the field. So uh, it's just one of those things to be aware of uh, in, in doing this whole thing. But I, I, my answer to that was uh, we usually like to plant mixes anyway, and that can kind of alleviate a problem like that. So just a little bit there on, on tillage. Another thing, and then I'm going to pause here after this slide. If any of you have questions, you can chat. You can, put it, you can type them in the chat box, or you could, we're going to open up the microphones here. Uh, so get ready for a question you have here. But I have heard this, I'm going to say numerous times now, where in a prevent plant situation, and let's just say uh, even in wet spots where there's just smaller areas that weren't able to get planted, by getting a good cover crop planted in a timely fashion during the summer and the weather kinds of cooperated where it did eventually dry out and that cover crop had a good opportunity to grow. Farmers have noticed a second year and even succeeding years effect in those wet spots draining better following a year after planted with cover crops and especially the radish because of the aggressive taproot that goes down. So um, don't think we can promise that this will happen every time but the fact is I've heard it from numerous uh, farmers where they're able to get a good cover crop planted where they're able to help solve some of the remediated properties of a wet spot or a wet area that drained better later on. So 
I'll stop and um, if any of you have a question, you can unmute yourself and ask it. And if not, we'll move on to uh, some research that we've done in prevented plant. Uh, does anyone have any question up to this point? Steve, one that I was thinking of is um, what, what's your recommendation? Um, obviously, radishes, you know, you don't want to plant till probably the end of July or August sometime. But you've got maybe a month window there, depending where you're at in the country and depending when your plant prevent plant date is. Do you recommend putting like a short-term summer season cover crop in there and then going into a fall more winter-hardy one, or what's what's your recommendation on that? Well, there's uh, it's an excellent question. There's two schools of thought. Now, one of them is if you really want to maximize cover crop um, opportunities, you plant your summer annuals in the summer. Let's say you get your planted, get it planted in July, and then come back and plant more of a winter annual cool season cover crops later on, like in September. Yeah. So that, that requires two separate planting passes, which may be warranted or maybe it may pay, you know, because you have that opportunity. Or, and this is some things I'm experimenting with, and actually today I'm planting uh, sun hemp, sorghum sudan, triticale, crimson clover, hairy vetch, radish. And my intention in my case is I'm taking one cutting off for forage because I have a market for it here. That's going to be primarily sorghum sudan and sun hemp. Then there's other cool seasons I'm hoping we're going to be surviving underneath there, and they'll come through so I don't have to make two passes. Now, for me right now, this is not necessarily a prevent plant situation. It's after wheat. And in my, my session on cover crops after wheat, I describe this a little bit more in detail. Uh, so that being said, it does depend on your location, when you can get your, we'll call it your stage one cover crop planted. But if you have like a sorghum sudan, sun hemp, and a radish, there's two, and I'm going to talk about this coming up here, I have a slide I think on it. Uh, those two are going to winter kill and the radish will usually last about eight weeks longer into the fall. So it's kind of, that's the one-two punch. And I talked about that in the cover crops after wheat. Yeah. So I think that's going to be up to the individual. I. Um, uh, my question is, will a winter annual survive underneath there? Uh, and you can maybe help that occur by, by your seeding rates and everything. So if you really want to be all out cover crops, you would probably make two passes. And again, that's going to vary for each farmer on the, the, the kind of seed they're getting and their, their um, you know, the cost of seeding and all that stuff. But, uh, so there's, again, there's, as in many things in cover crops, there's not one answer for everybody, but there's, there's no doubt about it. Ideally, if you would plant uh, early and then plant a cover crop again to set yourself up for the following year and to increase your soil health, it's that opportunity you're taking advantage of. Yeah. All right. Thanks for that. Anyone else have any questions? If not, Steve. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I want to reference a study back in 2013, this is from um, Iowa, where there was a, a high fertility field that was uh, fertilized with 60 pounds of nitrogen, remember that, fertilized with 60 pounds of nitrogen in 2013, uh, no additional nitrogen was added. At the beginning of August, then they planted some radishes in that field uh, because they were unable to get it planted uh, because of, due to uh, wet weather. When it went in 
the following year then. So the radishes were planted in 2013, 2014, they did a, a variable rate nitrogen rate from zero to 200 pounds just to see what did those, uh, how, how did the fertility work out? And were we able to keep, suck up some of that nitrogen from the previous year, carry it over and give it to the succeeding cash crop? And if you see this chart here, it was really clear, very clear that uh, only 50 pounds of nitrogen was needed. And um, in this case, the, the, it basically saved quite a bit of money and I mean, you look at this, uh, the farmer typically would have put 150 pounds on, so he saved 100 pounds. Remember, this fear, there was only 60 pounds applied the year before. So probably some of that was even picked up deeper in the soil and added to the following year that really helped. Now again, remember, this is, uh, this is pretty good soil here, uh, but the reality of it is you can see that by doing nothing or keeping that field sprayed clean, probably you would not have got this result. And this was the the result of how the cover crop helped it out. Now, in an ideal research plot, it would have been nice to have a control plot in here that would have indeed been no cover crop. That would have been informative. But it was it was very striking, though, to see how we could save some money here. And if you just look at the pure cost savings, when you deduct the investment of the cover crop and planting, there was a $15 an acre direct profit. It may not sound like a whole lot, but that doesn't account for all the other cover crop benefits, maybe the succeeding year's benefits that that one good cover crop did for that soil. And, and the other thing, too, and we've, I've talked about this more than, more than once, about how we have a story to tell when we use cover crops. We're keeping nutrients out of the water. And to what degree, it's a little hard to measure, but we know we're doing it. We know it's, it's happening. So that, to me, has some value. There is a monetary value included. I just don't know really what it is uh, so exactly, and that's going to vary so much from farm to farm and from field to field. So do I have a nutrient credit? Well, the answer is yes. I believe almost in every case you do. The, the question that we all want to know is how much is that credit? How do we manage for that? And this graphic here kind of shows what we already know, how a cover crop can take up leftover nutrients, hold them over through the winter so they don't leave, and then give them back to our cash crop the next spring. But that's really cool. But what does some of the research show? And this is some good data out of University of Maryland, who I work with over the years. And this is just looking at radishes here. And if you if you see the red line, that is the radish. That is the amount of um, nitrates that they took at those different depths in the soil. These numbers on the left side of the graph are inches. So we're down 60 inches. That's five feet deep. They actually measured a reduction in nitrates five feet deep. The black line, you can see how in that 20 to 30 inch range, and this is below where we actually measure a lot of the times in any type of nutrient test. But there's, there's nutrients down there. There's nitrogen down there. If we can catch it, 
with a cover crop, hold it, bring it up to the surface, and no, notice how the, the red line takes a sharp angle to the right. That's because there's more at the surface. It's bringing it up. Um, and, and this is kind of a, a continuing study. I mean, Dr. Weil is, is testing now seven feet deep uh, under different types of uh, cover crops. That, that data is going to be out in about a year now. It's a three-year project. And uh, so, yes, we have a nutrient credit. And just to show you some more pictures and, and some root digs that we've done. I mean, I've, I've dug root pits seven feet deep just to find the bottom. And, and here you can actually see a radish deep radish root that we saw six feet two inches deep. So they're, they're collecting nutrients down there. If there was no nutrients there, they wouldn't grow. Uh, we know there's nutrients there. They may not be a lot, but they're going to pull it up and get it to the surface so our cash crops can use it. And I think not only in a prevent planning situation, but in any situation, this is part of why cover crops are working. A little hard to see sometimes and a little hard to identify but I know that it's happening. So I want to kind of wind up my conversation here talking about maybe a, a little known uh, factor that can occur, particularly in a prevent plant situation. And that's why this is such a good time to talk about that. So if we have waterlogged soils, uh, soil in, in essence, is it's not good for soil. It's not good for soil biology, at least most of it, to be waterlogged for any period of time, like weeks at a time. That's just not good for the life in the soil. Um, and, and when that occurs, some of the soil life can be diminished. And when, when you have that situation and then you um, uh, can understand that something like the mycorrhizal, which helps take the nutrients from the soil into the plant. It's like a bridge for some of the nutrients, particularly phosphorus. And any of you who are agronomists, when you look at this picture, that's classic phosphorus deficiency. The lower leaves are turning purple. Very classic. Now, in this case here, though, um, and this, was, this had us scratching our heads for a while, and we think we know the answer. The soil test showed adequate phosphorus. Um, it wasn't high, but it was adequate. It wasn't, the soil test would not have indicated a need for phosphorus. And um, this was beyond early season here now. I mean, this is, as you can see, the corn is starting to go grow. Uh, so previously, the field had been um, a prevent plant, and then there was a cover crop of pretty much straight radishes planted. And this was the result of what was seen. Now, where we got onto this is we know that radishes do not host mycorrhizal fungi. And early on, when I started uh, looking into uh, mycorrhizal fungi, I, I knew too, it was around the same time where radishes were, where I was starting to get interested in them. And we were actually doing work here on my farm testing to see if radishes um, took down mycorrhizal fungi or reduced the numbers. And what we found was they didn't reduce the numbers, on my farm anyway, of mycorrhizal. They just maintained a plateau. And so this was a concern early on that radishes would do this. 
Now, all this being said, here was a situation where, again, the phosphorus wasn't that high, but it was adequate. Fields were waterlogged, planted radish, and the next year we showed some of these deficiencies, which the farmer was concerned. And we think what happened was the, the, the mycorrhizal population was also knocked down from the wet weather, from the saturated soil, and um, hence we, see, we saw phosphorus deficiency here. Now this crop did grow out of it, and it, it really was surprising how well it yielded. I don't remember all the, I just remember at the, at the end of the year, it wasn't as bad as what we thought it was going to be. So in light of that now, when we're talking about a, a particularly a prevent plant, we always want to have a, a host plant that hosts mycorrhizal and allows that fungi to increase. So the grass type crops, the oats, the millets, sorghum sedan grass, other grasses, they're typically what help enhance mycorrhizal. Brassicas don't. I, I don't think we can say they, they knock them off, but they don't enhance them. And, um, and legumes don't tend to help them near as much either. So this is a reason for using mixes when we're planting in, um, in our prevent plant situation. Now, most of us are using them anyway now. So it may be a kind of a moot point, but this is one of those things that it's just good to know about, that what you, you always want to grass in your mix, a mycorrhizal host, in your mix to be able to maximize this opportunity. So in summary today, and then we'll open it up for some more questions if you have them. Um, nutrients like nitrogen and sulfur, and I should probably add boron in here, they're, they're the ones that are the, the most free to leave. They don't attach themselves to soil. They, they can, you can lose them if they're not taken up in a plant. And that's why we plant cover crops so that we can be able to capture and store these nutrients. And uh, again, once that nutrient is caught up, taken up in a cover crop, in this instance, it's not gone anywhere. So we have this opportunity to do this in our pre-event planning uh, situation. So just in summary, the review here, um, I'm just going to say I didn't touch on this at all, but there's been some note that because we're able to get a cover crop planted, that diseases such as sudden death syndrome and even nematodes can be at least suppressed by using some cover crops. This may be an opportunity to, to do that. Uh, but the main reason we're looking at cover crops and prevent planting is to capture, store, and or create nutrients. That's mainly relating to nitrogen production with legumes. And of course, overall enhancing our soil health um, maybe we can help drain our wet spots. We can at least, it's at least going to be positive. Uh, that, that's one thing I can say for sure. And also just finally, this is, this is your chance to, to really make a difference in seeing how cover crops can be utilized. And I'll just reiterate that there's been quite a few farmers who have used the prevent planting option as their first foray into uh, cover cropping. So let me know what some of your questions are. Uh, feel free to unmute yourself. I'll just mention next week we're going to talk about using cover crops in a tillage system. So um, uh, I, as I had indicated, I'm a, I'm a no-till farmer myself, but I also understand uh, areas that are using some tillage and they want to use cover crops as well. 
Uh, so we're going to talk about some some things I've uh, learned from that uh, area. So that's what's coming up next week. But um, what are some of your uh, questions here as we uh, round out our topic today? Thank you, Steve. That was very interesting on the mycorrhizae and the phosphorus deficiency. Um, one of the questions I had, and it comes out some of our research we've done, is um, does that happen um, maybe more frequently than we realize or when it comes to nutrient deficiency that there's a lack of mycorrhizae to deliver those nutrients? Or is that well, just a wet could. situation? It certainly could. I think there's so many other variables go into this. With When we talk about nutrient availability, I'm, I'm of the belief that uh, pretty much when we start unlocking or enhancing the biological component of our soil, nutrients are going to be more available. Now, that's a very generic yeah. general statement, but I believe that's to me is kind of the forefront of the forefront now of the cover cropping movement and and, uh, and what where where is the balance between enhancing biological activity um, how do we do that and then what can we get out of that so to speak and uh, it's probably a whole other topic in that right there in that question yeah. so yeah, definitely as we move toward bio, more of a biological active soil we're going to see some of this benefits of nutrient availability and so forth. It's just how do we manage, how do we optimally manage for that is I think the crux of the matter that we're grappling with right now. Alrighty, thank you.